Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Gieve Baluch, the head of L'Oreal's Technology Incubator. Welcome, Gieve. Thank you so much for having me. Gieve, it's so nice to see you. You know, I know we're not at a far-flung location like CES or um, South by Southwest, but it's so good to connect virtually. Have you been doing a lot of these calls? A lot of these calls, but I, I like them because it's uh, we're all in the same boat, and so we need our we need to see each other and uh, have our interactions, even if it can't be in person. But hopefully, soon, safe and sound, we can do them in person. So, Gabe, just a quick question. You know, you are the technology, you know, incubator. You're you're like the guru of digital and technology at L'Oreal. So, I mean, are are you surprised at how well you know we've all transitioned to a virtual digital world? Well, first of all, thanks for calling me the guru. I think you'll be my uh, new PR agent. But uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I think, you know, um, it is incredible, like, when you see now what the world has become the past year. Um, obviously, there's so many things that, um, you know, um, we wish weren't here when it comes to health and, and all that. But when it comes to the way that we've had to quickly adopt technology and digital, it's, it's quite an incredible seeing the innovation that's happened. So yeah, it's a, it's a new world we're living in, which also means that we have to accelerate innovation and, and do a lot of new things. So it's, it's a, it's exciting when it comes to products. That's for sure. So Gabe, you know, you don't have a traditional beauty background, which, you know, I love, and I think that adds so much, you know, you know, of a, an incredible outside of perspective to beauty. Um, and, you know, how did you find your way from, you know, working and teaching at Berkeley to leading this huge, you know, innovative um, division at L'Oreal, the biggest beauty company in the world? Yeah, I've always had these kinds of um, really interesting paths in my career. I'm, I'm the type of person that I'm really open to new experiences. And I think because of that, some really incredible experience, uh, you know, changes have happened in my life um, in terms of my career. But it's true that, you know, I grew up in an academic uh, family. My father's an academic at Berkeley. Um, and uh, and I spent almost half of my life uh, really focused on um, academia and science in terms of um, pharma and um, health. And I fell upon this job in L'Oreal because I was moving to Chicago for family reasons and I just found this job and I didn't know anything about the company. Um, I do, I will say that I, I do like fashion and beauty in general, you know, even before joining L'Oreal, but I didn't really know much. Um, and uh, then I just discovered um, this incredible, you know, um, industry. First, I, I was, um, I must say a bit, um, I feel like if I didn't grow up in an academic family that I probably would have ended up being a marketer because I'm, I really like business and product and consumers. But at the same time, I feel a bit lucky because um, I have this kind of fundamental science background um, and I used my experience at being in L'Oreal um, almost 15 years to, to learn the marketing and the consumer part. And I just fell in love with the, the consumer. I fell in love with the culture of the company. Um, and little by little, I just uh, I just became a beauty executive. So um, now it's almost 15 years I'm doing that. So it feels like it feels like almost, uh, you know, most of my career outside of academia has been in beauty. But it was all chance. It was all chance. And then just uh, being open to change. 
I think back then, you know, not many conglomerates had tech divisions and these roles didn't really exist. So what was the job that you originally applied for? And, you know, what was your purview back then? Well, the first job I got in Chicago, um, it was interesting because um, they um, they had and we have this um, division which is in charge of ethnic hair and skin research. And so um, when I joined the company, um, one of the things that they wanted to understand was how hair that is very curly um, from different um, uh, cultures around the world, um, you could treat them with new types of relaxer treatments or post-shampoo treatments and then see how um, the integrity of the hair uh, improves or, or maintains. So they had these like machines and we would take individual hair fibers from places like like Liberia and um, different countries, other countries in Africa and um, all around the world, India, Brazil, and we would test um, the product and then we would, you know, uh, see how how the integrity of the hair um, would be, you know, um, would change. And so um, I was kind of in charge of this machine that would do that. And so it was, I know it's really weird, but actually in my pharma background, I was working a lot in, um, in osteoporosis. So when I remember when I interviewed for the job, I said, well, it's hair, it's like collagen in the, in the bone. So I said, you know, it's like kind of similar because we also want our bones to be strong, just like the hair. I guess it worked. I don't know now. I, I had a very nice hiring manager who I'm still in touch with after almost 15 years. So, um, but yeah, so that was my entry. And then once I got in, I think they saw that I had this kind of real entrepreneurial um, uh, background and spirit and, and they started putting me in other roles after. How, how was that role like kind of established? Was it across brands? Was it for a certain brand? Because now what you do is really touching every single brand that you all own and really integrating technology in each in each product in each in each brand and each organization. Yeah, it was well everything I've done since the moment I joined the company has been within the research group. So we we um L'Oreal um is one of the highest investors in research, I think the highest in in um, R&D. And I think the reason is because we were started in um, 1909 by Eugène Schuller, who was a chemist. So the history of the company is actually science. And actually, a couple of the CEOs, I think, uh, you know, um, two of the previous CEOs were were head of R&D. And so I think that um, for that reason, when I joined the R&D team, um, there were all kinds of projects going on. Um, and the idea was to work on these on technologies that could then be cascaded amongst many brands. Um, and, uh, you know, my, you know, for example, we have lots of brands that address ethnic hair and skin. So the question was, what are the core kinds of new actives and new things that we can bring that could cascade to all of them that could make the hair integrity better? That was like, you know, my, um, my job in my first uh, position in the company. And since then, I've always been servicing all the brands. But um, now that I'm running the tech piece, um, the relationship with the brand has been one of the most important parts because tech, you have to be a little bit more close to the brand um, because it's a new it's a new kind of business model. So you have to kind of partner with them even earlier on than if you were to create, for example, a compound or a molecule for the next skincare or hair care. So tell me exactly, Gabe, in, in, in however many words you want to, um, how, what does the technology incubator do? 
So, you know, it's funny. It's, it's like I've been doing this job now for, so I've been in the group 14 years, but I've been doing this job since 2012. And so what happened was um, in 2012, um, they came to me, they, it sounds uh, very uh, ominous, but they, they, meaning the executive management, um, came to me and they said, listen, you know, we think that we know digital's on the rise because they had already, you know, started their digital revolution in the group. But they said, we know also technology is really transforming um, health and fitness and we, you know, at, the, at that stage, there were things like the Nike Fuel Band and there were these new things coming out. And they were like, we want to know what that means for beauty. And um, and they said, we think you're the guy to 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 show us. And so the idea was to try for one year to, to create a team that at that stage, we called it um, a connected beauty team. So it was all about data and connectivity. And they said, you come up with the vision, you come up with uh, every, uh, everything. And I must say there was a, a piece of me that was very worried because um, uh, I'm a biologist actually in training. I do, I, I did grow up in California, but just because you grow up in California doesn't mean you're, you know, the next, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, it's like uh, I was a. I, I didn't know as much as I thought I did um, in terms of tech. Um, but on the other hand, I was excited because I knew that this was an area that would really change beauty. Um, so I, I just, and I think sometimes when you're not an expert in something, you approach the problem differently. You approach it with a more humble. Uh, uh, you know, um, eyes and you try to build great teams around you and alongside you. So it's what I did. So I hired a few people and to go back to your original question, um, the idea that we have in, uh, from day one on my team has been um, how can we um, really elevate the beauty experience for people around the world um, by using tech? And that means that um, we look at age old consumer needs, things that have been around for, you know, beauty has been around since uh, the, almost the beginning of time. So when you think about that, you know, um, the needs of consumers are things that um, are the most important to understand how we can solve. And if those needs today can't be solved with without technology, we tackle those problems. So to be more um, uh, pragmatic, um, we look at areas like personalized beauty, this idea that every human being on the face of the earth should have the product made for them without having to go through a maze of a thousand options and auditioning every product in the world to get there. Um, we look at things like measurement tools, the ability to give people the right data using tech about their skin tone, about their skin and their habits. Um, we look at um, uh, sustainability, how we can use tech to make the world a better place in terms of water consumption and areas like that. And, and also magical applicators, things that can really uh, you know, transform the face. So anything that kind of is in between that physical and digital that kind of builds a system around the consumer to give them a, a let's say, augmented beauty for the future is what my team handles. And it's been now nine years we're doing that. So, so Gabe, what do you think the customer wants right now? Because I mean, we're in such a tricky position, right? Like, you know, I think beauty has become in some ways more important because it's synonymous with self-care and, and wellness and health and sustainability. So, and, and, and even bigger 
you know, topics like diversity and inclusion and all of that. But in some other ways, you know, the practical use case of beauty, right? Wearing a lipstick to go out to dinner, you know, we can't do as much. So, you know, tell me a little bit about the innovations that you know you're rolling out this year and why you think they're still relevant in this weird pandemic living life. To, to tell you about our projects, one of them actually is called Perso, and it's something that we launched last year at uh, CES, and this year we gave an update on it. It's a, a handheld device that has three cartridges in it, and it dispenses lipstick, um, and uh, it personalizes the lipstick. So basically the way it works is um, you turn on the app, you can look at a trend that's on your app for the day. You can see a trend on Instagram or one of the social platforms. You try on virtually the lipstick without any um, uh, need physically, just using our augmented reality app, Modiface powered app. And then you say, oh, I like this one. And you click it and it dispenses the right amount of each um, color and the three cartridges at the top of the device and you just mix it at the top and you get the color. And so to, to your original point, you know, I think lipstick, it's true we can't wear that out. It's not a lot of people are wearing them outside as much, but there is something when you're on a call, when you're doing a video call, lipstick is this kind of iconic makeup product that can immediately transform you. And um, it's something that's also, it, it's an emotional, and, and we're living in this time, even in more of an emotional um, world. You know, we need to feel good about ourselves. We need to feel, to give, um, sometimes that means not wearing anything, which is uh, makeup wise, mm -hmm. hopefully not to beyond that, but makeup wise. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, but, but other times it's just getting that lipstick and just applying that as this ritual that makes you feel good. And um, the thing that we wanted to create with this device was not making people go out and buy 100 lipsticks for 100 trends. Why can't they see a trend that they want that they see on online and just try the product today? Why can't they try um, be and you know when you do that you open more daring options for people. People will try. You know if I have to buy a tube of a very daring color, maybe it's a different uh, decision for me than if I can try that with you know my Perso device, my um, uh, Perso uh, lipstick smart applicator that uh, I can then try another one and I can try hundreds more with only three cartridges. So yeah, so that was our first product. And so we seem to be getting a lot of really first product this year, we seem to be getting a lot of really good traction. We, um, we've had an incredible humbling and incredible um, pre-order list. Um, after we announced it, it's a um, uh, it's on our, uh, the YSL Beauty website. It's, I think, uh, uh, yslbeauty.com slash perso. And anyway, so people can sign up and they can be part of our beta program. Um, so we still see, we see a lot of um, excitement. But again, it goes to the trends. It goes to the fact that it's not about a million shades. It's about trying a trend and getting the shade. It's about matching the color of my dress or purse or nails. It's about giving people... Um, more recommended options and smart options. With Perso specifically, I remember at CES last year, it was originally gonna come out with skincare, if I remember correctly. And I think it's such a bold move that you all switch and obviously are doing it with lipsticks. What was that about? And then I guess a secondary question, because I ask a million questions in a question, um, and I think people know that, but is that, you know, how insulated is the technology incubator from trends, like overall cyclical, you know, downturn of color, uptick in makeup or hair? 
Okay, so the first question, because um, the second one is, is a very, very uh, uh, interesting one, and I'll give you my feedback on it, to, I promise. Uh, on the first one, yeah, we, we actually unveiled, as you said, a skincare version and a lipstick version at CS, but we said that we would come out with the skincare first. It turns out we switched it, and this sometimes happens in my team because, you know, um, one of the things that we do is we do a lot of testing to ensure the accuracy, and we make sure that consumers consumers have the right product and there are all the logistics behind registering formulas and where you launch and all of that. And we were able to do the lipstick a lot faster actually than we had anticipated. Originally, we told everybody we'll come with both lipstick and skincare at the end of this year, but we were able to accelerate the lipstick. So we just announced that first, but uh, don't, um, don't worry because the skincare one is coming at the end of the year as we originally thought. It's on track. It's, uh, it takes a little little bit longer for the skincare um, version because we want to make sure that the daily change in the skincare is really meeting what a consumer would want and is um, something that is adapting um, in a way that can really evolve and make their skincare better over time. So this takes a little bit more time because with skincare, we have all kinds of actives and uh, serums and creams, and we're trying to make the perfect uh, system. But by end of this year, we'll come out with it. Um, and on your question about the trends, so it's funny, if you asked me this question five years ago, I would say, well, I don't listen to trends because, um, because we're trying to create something that the consumer doesn't, um, doesn't have today because tech is something that hasn't been adopted, um, in the consumer world, uh, in the beauty world, uh, 10 years ago, it was at the beginning, there was no beauty company at the CES. We were, I think one of the first, um, but now it's different. Now what I realize over time is that, there are different stages where we have to um, uh, look at trends. Um, we don't look at trends to create projects because a lot of our products are things that are, um, uh, you know, something that doesn't live in the consumer's um, beauty uh, uh, world today. But we do look at them first to check the tensions. What are the things that people really want? In their uh, for their beauty, what are the tensions that they face today, which are unrelated to tech uh, necessarily? We just look at that as the first step to see can technology help us solve. Then, after we come up with an idea, then we uh, really try to make sure that we have the right trends that fuels the idea. So, for example, on um, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, Perso, we we started that project six years ago, and we had this idea of like this is oh we can make every color in the world of lipstick, uh, and it's incredible. As an engineer, I, I'm you know, as a scientist for me, I was like this is cool, and um, but then we realized that actually consumers don't want a million shades of lipstick. They want uh, shades that are recommended to them. They want shades that are are in the trends that they don't have to wait. And I realized, oh man, we have the physical object, but we don't have the digital experience. So we stopped the project and we waited four years. And then four years later, when we saw all the AI was coming and the, the ability to integrate trends and make the virtual rea uh, augmented reality integrated, we were like, oh, we can solve this need now using Perso. And so we restarted the project. So so a lot of times we'll we'll see if the tension is there and if we're really solving it. But I wouldn't say that, you know, we're on top of the next color, the next shade, the next, uh, we're, we're more about trying to understand this um, societal and uh, behavioral aspects of what people want for the future of their beauty and try to use tech to solve it.
So I have a million questions, Steve, which sure. I think is great because, you know, I'm wondering, you know, some of these devices, you know, and we've seen this, you know, not just from L'Oreal, but from other companies too, you know, they're a little bit more expensive. And sure. so I know marketing isn't exactly your purview, mm -hmm. but how do you convince the customer that, hey, this is actually a better deal and you will like this. Like, it's not just for an affluent customer, you know, a $300 yeah. device or more yeah. and that, you know, really it's more discovery and also like bang for your buck if you think about it. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a good it's a good question. And I, I will tell you what I think is the answer. Um, but I will say even after 10 years, I'm still trying to understand that question. Um, but I'll tell you what I tr what I know. What I know is that um, uh, I I'll use the example of Perso. I'm not selling lipstick. I'm not selling a $300 lipstick to the consumer. I'm selling a companion, a digital companion that can, um, that can help um, women uh, or men, uh, anybody, human beings to be able to try trends in real time, to be able to create a trend and to become an influencer um, uh, and to have their people in their family or people in their lives try the shade that they create and then dispense it and, and um, use it right there in their home. Um, and I think if you if you're trying to sell something that can really change, uh, you know, a, make a paradigm shift in how people um, are experiencing beauty, then the price point becomes um, something they can handle. If you're just trying to sell something that's a cool applicator of lipstick for $300 that doesn't do much more than, you know, if you had. And, and I'm not uh, in any way trying to say that um, I know better than others, but because I've learned this from the failures in my career, I've learned that if I if you just try and sell something that's quote unquote cool, but it doesn't, you know, go to that point, then the price point becomes very important. So this is the first answer I have for you. The second is that I think that um, we must have a very, very um, uh, good understanding of the platforms that we create around projects. And what do I mean by platform? I mean that um, at the beginning, an experience um, to be very accurate and very high quality may have to start at a higher price point. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to end at a higher price point. What I mean by that, I'll give an example. We, we had a project called Le Temps Particulier. It's a shade machine for foundation. So the big issue that 50% of women can't get the right shade of foundation. And as you know, I mentioned before, inclusivity is an important, um, uh, is one of the biggest areas that we're innovating on in L'Oreal today, not just in tech. Um, but if you look at that problem, it's a big uh, problem of inclusivity. So we created this machine and we realized that the only way to get the accurate skin tone measurement was by having a physical object at the point of sale. And the only way to make the perfect color was to have a very high-end machine. Um, and so the experience uh, went to Lancome, our, a luxury brand that we have. And, it's, uh, and it went to hundreds of stores, not thousands, but hundreds. Um, but it solved a problem. And we had women come to the store crying in joy. At first, I was like, oh, God, what do you mean crying? But no, it was a, it was a joyful cry uh, because they've never been able to get the right shade. But then the question becomes, how do we then make this? It's an $80 product. How do we then make it for, for a more accessible consumer? And over time, because we started the project with the value of making sure the skin tone measurement was accurate, we were able to then spend two years 
working on making a virtual version of that, a digital version of that, that took advantage of all the, uh, the anonymized data we had in the first one. And now we're getting to a stage where we're about ready to launch a digital version. And if we get to the digital version, then we get to a lot more consumers. And then we can get to brands in our portfolio that are um, more um, reasonably, you know, or mass priced, not reasonably, but mass priced, not in the luxury space. And we can then cascade. So again, my point is there are two pieces. First is that I think people will pay if you provide them something that's not just cool, but solves a problem. And I think that it's it should not stop there by just justifying that people will pay the the big prices, but we should take the quality of what we've created and find ways in the future to get them to more accessible prices as well. What do you think about certain things like you know augmented reality, VR, AI? You know, because I know I you know Modiface was a big you know win for L'Oreal a few years ago, and you mentioned that um, you mentioned augmented reality just a second ago, and I'm wondering like how much of that is you know really driving change at L'Oreal because I know at some other companies it really just feels like at least when I try the apps and I, and as a consumer it's like a sticker on there it doesn't feel real it doesn't feel as integrated as I think consumers want it to be. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have a special place in my heart for augmented reality because it was the first project of my team. So we had 2012, uh, we started and 2014, we launched Makeup Genius, which was our first product. And back then it was an iPhone 4 so or iPhone 5. So the camera on the front facing was so... Um, low resolution, but we found this incredible partner that just had this technology. And, and one of the reasons I think we were able to find that was because we went to the animation industry. We didn't go to, um, to a beauty, uh, you know, be, we're in our industry, we have incredible innovations, but we're not an augmented reality industry. We're an industry of products and, um, and beauty. So we went to the animation industry and we got that. And what what actually um, drew me to that project was, um, and um, it's a really a true story, was that I was at a Dwayne Reed in Wall Street. Um, and I remember I was with my wife and she was looking at 1000 uh, lipsticks and they were on the um, the bottom shelf of the of the um of the shelf and she had to, you know, um, you know, bend down and look and get all of them and see, Oh, is this the right one? Is that the one? And I go, wow, it's so hard to know which one to choose. You don't have a makeup artist there. You don't have any kind of way to try. So I said, you know, um, what if there could be a way to, you could just scan it and it just show up on your phone and you could try it. But I'll go to your, your point after about that. The thing is like when we started that project, the thing I realized is that the most difficult part of augmented reality, there too, was first to make it work in real time. And that part was solved thanks to a great partner we had, but now there are many people doing that. And we bought Modiface, which is a great uh, great uh, story for, for the group. And it was done by the digital teams, not um, our team. So, um, so I'm proud that we have partners that took it and made it so big. Um, but the other challenge is making sure that what you see is what you get when you buy the product. And this is a challenge because your lip color and my lip color are different. So the way that the product will look will be different on both of us. So we had to run incredible amounts of tests. We had people, I remember, it was just kind of, I have stories for a lifetime, but we had people like a, 
a room that was with a black, uh, uh, what do you call it? A black painted room, completely dark with hundreds of lighting angles and phones that were from Samsung's to Nokia's to Apple. And we were testing physical versus digital on all kinds of um, different skin tones from people from very light skin to dark skin. And we had to like adapt the algorithm to it. I, and I have to say, I don't know. I think I have a major respect for our competitors. So it's not at all a comment, but I don't know how many startups or companies would have the resources and backing to run a study like that. That's a, it's a significant cost to time and data acquisition to do it. But I think it created the uh, version of the app, which was much more realistic. And our dream was to solve this problem of the bottom shelf of people going, our dream wasn't to just have a fun app. So I think that's, um, that's been how we approached it. And then I must say, we had to give it to our digital, our chief digital officer, who then bought Modafe, uh, who, you know, she didn't uh, personally, but she pushed the acquisition of Modiface in the group and found a way to to make it omni-channel and O2O and all around the world. So that was more her and her team that did that than me. But um, yeah, I, I think I'm a big believer in it. How would you say, like, at least this year, you know, those fundamentals like AR, AI, you know, especially when you think about personalization, how important is are, is getting those right at L'Oreal versus, you know, the the innovative part of it, you know, whether it's the waterless saver that I want to talk to you about in a second or Perso, because it seems like they all live in the same world, but do you ever have to make a decision where you're choosing to focus on one or the other, or, you know, what's important for the customer? It's a, it's, um, you know, it's something I deal with every day because I have an incredible amount of energy. And I, I say that in also a negative way too, not just positive. Like, I don't know why I'm like that. Ever since I was a kid, I was like that. But I wake up at like five in the morning and I have a million ideas in my head. And um, I'm not, I've learned over time and lots of gray hair that it's great to keep that spirit. So I don't, I never change my spirit of having a lot of ideas and the same for my team. But it's the difficult decisions of which projects to choose that have made me learn and grow as a leader. Um, and I think that it's not about choosing between two great projects. That's not my issue. My issue is making sure that I have a portfolio of five to 10 that are amazing. And if I had another five to 10 that weren't, that I should stop them quicker. And that is something that I've gotten better at over time. Because, you know, I must say one of the things that I believed in my career is that I always wanted to deliver things on the market. I always said to myself, you have to be a doer. And for that reason, sometimes you're afraid to stop because you think if I stop a lot of projects, maybe I won't deliver the way that I've been delivering on the market. So, um, and, and there is some truth to that, by the way. It says, it's not like, a, if I was to look at data, I probably would have nothing on the market today. If I was to look at business models and business plans, and uh, you know, if I was just to, to be very factual, and this is why I say it's sometimes good to not be an engineer or not be a tech person and try to do tech. Uh, I took bets, but um, what I do now is I make sure that every bet that we take solves one of those pro challenges that we discuss for consumers, that it meets multiple values of the three that I mentioned before, and that we truly believe if we can make it happen, it can make people's lives, um, beauty lives and habits better. And when you look at it in that lens, I do say no to a lot of projects. I do have to, it's, it's not an, I'm lucky that it's not about choice. It's about strategy. 
Meaning, um, I've never had a moment in my career where I had something I really believed in that I felt we had to do that I couldn't do. But I do have moments where I'm like, I'm not sure this is the right thing. It's not going the way I want it to go. And, um, and I'll have to either pivot or stop. And I'm getting better at that over time, uh, over time. How do you get not get mired in data? Because it seems like everybody is just obsessed with data right now. I mean, if you think about some of the companies out there that are really selling personalization or, you know, um, tweaking a product with different packaging or scents or whatever, or, or foundation, right? You know, it's all about the data. It's what people are looking for. And then they kind of spin that off into other brands. So for you, you know, I know you mentioned at the top of this conversation that personalization is a very big deal at L'Oreal and for you. So how do you not get, you know, confused by it? Or, you yeah. know, is it telling you two different things at once? Sometimes, yes. I think um, uh, what I, the way I approach is that I think that personalization is a way to achieve inclusivity. It's not a trend for me. For me, it is a trend in the world, I know. But for me, it's not a trend the way I look at it. It's a tool to uh, to get people to a product where they couldn't get before. And if I look when I looked at it in that lens, there were moments where I had projects that I couldn't really get people a better product through personalization. I tried, but I couldn't. And even if the data was there, and I said to myself, well, then we shouldn't do it. Um, and I'll, I'll, um, I'll give some examples of things we've done that I, that I think can show the opposite, which is, you know, I mentioned to 50, 50% of women can't find the right shade of foundation. There's nothing more clear than that. I don't need more data than to know that there are 50% of women around the world that are frustrated that they can't get the right shade. And uh, when you look at the evolution of, of um, society and people with gender fluidity and the changes in, in, in um, cultural diversity and how, um, how um, our, our skin tones are evolving, this is not a challenge that's going to, to go away. This is something that's going to stay. Um, and it's uh, what will uh, be challenging is how people expect things from us a lot more now than they would have um, um, years before. So this is it's you know, I don't need much data to know that when I have when I'm consumed around a lot of data, but without something as convincing and compelling as what I just mentioned to you, then I know it's not the right way to go. And um, and then there are moments I will say that we have really compelling consumer cases, but I can't make the technology work. Um, we had that with hair color. Every time I did a personalized uh, beauty product, everyone told me, why don't you do hair color? And I said, the reason we couldn't do it is because um, if uh, at the beginning was because people that have the same hair color to begin with, if they have a different hair color history or a different porosity of hair, the same dye will get a different result. So there's no way you can test that without having the right measurement. And that's complicated. So I, I said, even though I know that you go to, um, du uh, you know, D Dwayne Reed or Monoprix or wherever around the world, and you have lots of boxes of hair color, and it's very difficult for you to know how to choose. Um, I knew I couldn't, I didn't have the technology to get there yet. So I put, put that on the background. And then we created, after we had it, a startup called Color & Co., which was, uh, you know, it, I realized we needed the hair colorist. 
We needed a video FaceTime with the hair colorist. They can help us answer. So we found a way to have like a combination of physical and digital, a, a hair colorist where then the algorithm could be much smarter. And then we get people the perfect hair color at home. So I think again, just to go back to your original point, um, I try not to get consumed by data and trends because I know in the end, um, uh, I want to do, um, products and projects and services that, um, can, can solve the biggest problems, can make, uh, make some of the, the dreams of people that they've never been able to achieve come true. Those are usually a lot more simple when it comes. It's the challenge is the finding the technology to make it actually work. So last question for you, Gabe, you know, knowing that what is your big ambition for, you know, either this year or next year, like what is your next big pain point that you want to solve for? And you think that L'Oreal can solve for? Well, um, as I said, I wake up every day with a thousand ideas, but for the sake of your podcast time and your um, listeners, I'll make it, uh, I'll give you a few. Um, uh, one, I have this big, big belief that, um, we'll have a world where, um, physical objects will be able to magically, um, bring results on the skin first on makeup, um, you know, uh, uh, being able to, um, to analyze and apply makeup with a level of autonomy and precision that could never be done before getting, uh, you know, all kinds of results that are, um, at, at, you know, professional levels with smart applicators and this kind of, this kind of idea that, you know, it's not AI, it's not devices, it's not big data, it's everything combined to make magical experiences, like a tool that could, you know, really um, transform the, the face. Imagine one day you could detect an individual wrinkle and only treat the wrinkle, or you could, uh, you could, I don't know, magically apply uh, um, different types of makeup that, uh, that you, it's kind of augmenting your, your beauty. Um, I think this area, I think sustainability, uh, you know, this idea that we're working on this project called the water saver, which is about how we can um, reduce water consumption, but not reduce the um, pleasure of having the water flow on your hair. So with the technology we have with this company called Gyoza, it reduces the water droplet 10 times smaller. So you feel the same speed and force of the water without having that, you know, low flow experience, but you save 80% of the water. And I want to, I want to bring that everywhere in people's homes and people's salons. I want, um, so I think that's rolling future, out this year in salons, yeah, correct? Yeah. We just started in New York and we're going to continue to grow it. And we have big ambitions and, uh, our, our, um, head of R and D, uh, R and I, uh, uh, who's uh, just been appointed, Barbara Levernos. She's a big believer in that and a great supporter. Um, so, so we're going to push that. So I think sustainability, I think magical results, and I think this mass personalization to everyone around the world, no matter where you live, being heard and co-creating the product of your, um, your needs will create a world of inclusive beauty that technology can help us provide. So these are three areas that I'm just really passionate about and I, and I hope, uh, hope we can achieve over time. Thank you so much, Gabe. This is great sure. having you. We're going to have to have you back and kind of find out how this all rolled out at the end of the year. Okay. Anytime, anytime, and hopefully in person next time. And thanks for having me. Thanks a lot thanks. for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And if you know someone or more than one who should be listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, please have them subscribe. See you next week.